So there was this guy, uh, very, very successful uh, businessman back in the, it was the 1920s, I guess it was, in, uh, on the West Coast. Incredibly wealthy. Um, I, think it was, I think it was William Randolph Hearst. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but at any rate, this guy was crazy rich and uh, kind of eccentric, almost Howard Hughes-like. And um, he built a zoo on his estate. And it, was, it wasn't public, it was like a private zoo. And he really had it just to kind of show all his rich friends all these exotic animals, and there really were many from all over the world. At any rate, he was told at one point about this gazelle that was from um, Africa. It was very rare and very beautiful and very uncaptured. No zoo anywhere had one of these gazelles. So he became determined to be the first, this rich guy. And he put together this almost like an expedition, I guess, goes to Africa in search of these gazelles. And when he gets there, he's met with the, the local, I guess, tribesmen, people who knew the, the land, and, and they said to him, you're never gonna get one of these things. They explained that there's a reason why they haven't yet been captured. And they said pretty simply that he's just, they're, they're too fast, they're too strong, and they're too smart to be captured. Well, that made this guy even more determined. In fact, in an interview prior to this hunt, he said, uh, I'll get one. In fact, I'll get as many of them as I want. It won't be a problem. It's a real kind of bold, this guy. This is what he did. They went out and they, uh, you know, they found a, a herd of these gazelles. So, uh, and they realized, okay, this was a spot where they generally kind of hang out. And they put together this mixture of food. It was a combination of um, oats and barley and molasses. And during the day, they went to the area where they had been the night before and they spread this food on this open field area. That night, the gazelles showed up and just had themselves a great meal. And this went on for two weeks. Every day, at a certain point, they'd put more of this food down. A couple of hours later, when the sun went down, these gazelles would come feeding. The beginning of the third week, what they did one afternoon was they uh, sank an eight-foot post into the corner of this opening of land. And they continued to put the food down right near it. So the gazelles just kept showing. As long as there was food, the gazelles were showing. The next night, or the next day, they went out and they sank another post, 20 feet the other way. Each day, they put a different post. Each night, gazelles would come by and enjoy this food. At the week six, they had built a corral. This is a very sort of gradual process. But they kept an opening. 
so the gazelles could get in and out. It was a small opening. It had been bigger at one point, and they kind of just made it uh, smaller and smaller. And they'd, they knew where the entrance was. They'd go in, they'd have the food, and they'd make their way out, oblivious to the fact that they were gradually losing their freedom. Eventually, one day, um, well, they put the food down one more time. This entire herd goes into the, really what is now a corral, and the crew went up and they nailed it shut. They enclosed it finally. Where there was the one opening, they now shut that off. So he got them all. He kept the ones he wanted, he released the ones he didn't. And he was asked, like, how'd you know? How did you know to do that? And this was his response. Actually, it was pretty simple, he said. I just treat the animals the way I treat people. I give them what they want. In exchange, they give me their freedom. It's kind of a sobering statement. I give them what they want. In exchange, they give me their freedom. You ever feel like one of those gazelles? <laughs> Where kind of slowly, gradually, quietly, seductively, you become kind of lured into, lured into a, a place where there's comfort, stuff you want, something you like. But it's gradual, so it's not like an over, it's not a light switch, it's like a, it's like a dimmer, very slowly. And you kind of like this stuff more and more. And then at a certain point, you're like, what the heck happened? How did I, how did I get here? And I can't really get out. I feel trapped. You know, when the, down at St. Ignatius, where I now live, you know, sometimes the cable goes out. You know, happens to all of us, right? Sometimes the internet is down for a while. Sometimes my phone dies on me. I didn't plug it in. Battery dies, kind of unexpected. Every once in a while, I'll, uh, you know, I'm going somewhere, I'm in the car, I'm 15 minutes on the road and I realize I forgot my phone and it's, I don't have time to go back and I'm gonna be gone now for a couple of hours and I start to hyperventilate. It's like, what the heck is wrong with me? Why is that such a big deal? Like, I'm not that important. I'm not expecting anything so significant. I don't like how I feel when the cable goes out or the internet goes down. I don't like, I don't like the fact that it irritates me as much as it does. And hey, I get, sometimes it is irritating. You're in the middle of something and you need it. So hey, appropriate irritation. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about it like making me more uncomfortable than I should be. I'm 57, and I kind of freak out when I don't have my phone. Man, like, what's a 16-year-old do? When, like, that's all they've ever known. You know, those of us old enough remember, like, you know, remember when we only had seven, seven or eight channels on a TV? Two, four, five, seven, nine, 11, and 13, and maybe 21. Like, and that was it, that was it. Like, what? What the heck did we do? And half of those channels we weren't even interested in. So like, there were like three or four channels that you, like, what did we do with our time? When we didn't have 2,000 channels. I don't know, did we go to bed earlier? Did we read more? Did we pray more? Did we converse more? I think in some respects, I've become trapped in a corral. And that's just a technology thing. I mean, this, that's only one aspect of l loss of freedom. So many ways in which we can become trapped. And it's the beginning of Lent. And always in the beginning of Lent, we hear about Jesus going into the desert. If he did, I guess we should. He wouldn't have gone there. It wasn't like he went out for a walk and he got lost. He went to the desert intentionally. There must be value and purpose in the desert. So if he went, we should too, or at least our version of it. And you know what the church gives us? Lent. It gives us six weeks where we're supposed to kind of create like a, a desert dynamic on Long Island. When I go into a desert, but we're supposed to kind of create circumstances, situations, we're supposed to create goals, I think, where we look at maybe stuff that we become too attached to and challenge it. Like for the gazelles, we know what it was. It was oats, barley, and molasses. And they lost their freedom. What steals your freedom? What are the freedom stealers in your life? What makes you sort of more uncomfortable than you know you should be when it's taken away? I think Lent is saying, try and take it away, or at least limit it, and see how we do with less of it. You know, sometimes deserts are imposed on us. You know, Lent is kind of a manufactured desert. Begins on a certain day, lasts a certain amount of time, and it ends on a certain day. Sometimes they, deserts appear and blow up in our faces and in our lives. I used to live with a, for a short period of time, I lived with a priest um, who had been, a, uh, had been a, high, uh, a hospital chaplain 
For a number of years, at this point he wasn't, but he spent a lot of his priesthood as a, in hospitals. And I remember him telling me, I was, I was young, I was in my first assignment, and I remember he said to me, uh, whenever you go to the hospital, on a, like a hospital call, he said, if you can, go visit the chapel, the hospital chapel. And he said, you know, I know you're not gonna be able to do it every time, you're probably gonna be busy, but if you can, check it out. And I was like, why? And he said, because there's no place more intense than a hospital chapel. Prayers are no, there is no place where prayer is more hardcore and felt and meant than when you're sitting in a chapel in a hospital. There's a reason why you're in the hospital. The reason why you're in that chapel, because somebody you love up on the third floor is not in a good way. And you're in this desert. And you're just like, I need help, help. You're in a place where like, only God can help. Yeah, I hope the doctors and nurses do their thing. But even beyond them, it's like, I'm alone out here. Anyway, his advice was just sort of roam around, do a walkthrough, because you might see somebody who's absolutely feeling that way. And if they see a priest, maybe they'll want to talk. And if you have the time, give them it. I'm not going to lie and say I, I do it every time I go and visit a hospital, but I have done it. And a few times over the years, it's exactly what happened. You walk into somebody's desert. You know, uh, Martin Luther King, he wrote a book uh, in the late 50s. It was called uh, Stride Toward Freedom. And he uh, it was sort of a, de a description of the conditions in the South for African Americans in the 50s. More specifically, it kind of chronicled the, uh, the boycotts, the bus boycotts in uh, Alabama. I think it was 1955 and 56. Rosa Parks. It was really kind of the beginning of the civil rights movement. And it was heating up and it was becoming more and more tense and dangerous. King was getting these threat, rig daily threats. His family was being threatened. Anyway, he, uh, in the book, he describes this experience he had one night. He's asleep and the phone rings kind of in the middle of the night. And it's nobody he knows. Well, this is what he wrote. An angry voice said, listen, we've taken all we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. And then he says in his book, I hung up, but I couldn't sleep. It seemed that all of my fears had come down on me at once. I had reached the saturation point. I got out of bed and began to walk the floor. Finally, I went to the kitchen and heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. With my coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take 
my problem to God. With my head in my hand, I bowed over the kitchen table and I prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. This is what he said. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I'm afraid. The people looking to me for leadership and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't take it alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. I think when we're in the desert, like it's supposed to be a place where there's no place to go but to God. And like I said, sometimes they're thrust upon us, sadly. But we're also supposed to kind of create them. You know, not, not, that, not that kind of a scenario. And we shouldn't go looking for hospital chapel scenarios. But to create occasions where we struggle and we're reminded of our need for God. And it's, I mean, think about what we do. We just, we just, we cut corners with it, with Lent. We just find ways of making it less difficult. You know, we, we follow the rule, but we just do an end run. I was out Friday, the other night, after Friday Night Lights, I went out with um, Jordan and um, Jonathan, who was the seminarian here, uh, he was here a couple of summers ago. Jonathan loves, loves salmon. He has, like every time I go out with him, he has salmon. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, hey, you should give up salmon for Lent. Like you're ordering salmon here at this restaurant, and it's like the easiest thing in the world. I'm struggling to find something to eat. And he's like, well, I'm not eating meat. Like we, it's just gotta be about more than that. That rich guy, the guy with the zoo, he said, I give them what they want, and in exchange, they give me their freedom. We can become like those gazelles, gluttonous and blind to what's surrounding us. Oat and barley and molasses. Well, that was their poison. What's yours? What's ours? It stole away their freedom. What steals yours? So do something this Lent, more than the usual. You know, the gospel said that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert. He didn't get lost in the desert. He didn't make a wrong turn and end up in the desert. God wanted him to go into the desert. So get led to your desert. Create one to be led to. Do something which will create temptation for you. They're not 
dangerous, crazy temptation. But temptation. Create a goal or two where it's like, I'm just staying away from this. And I'll, re- I'll substitute it with something just better. And it won't be easy. And I'll be tempted to ditch it. Don't make it impossible. Don't create a, a, a recipe for failure. But don't make it a joke. Don't make it salmon on Fridays. <laughs> you know, the name of that book, that Martin Luther King book, was Stride Toward Freedom. This Lent, stride toward yours.